have a seat. Have you ever hung out, spent time with, been around somebody who was a child during the Depression? Might have been your dad, might have been an uncle, might have been a friend. For me, it's my grandpa, and my grandpa fits uh, the description of, of a child of the Depression very well. One thing that's, that's very true of my grandpa and all Depression kids, it seems, that remember that era and lived through that time in our, our country's history, is that they are very consistent people. Uh, my grandpa is, is a guy that went to work every single day, never called in sick. Uh, he is a guy that, that raised the family well and made sure to support them. He's a guy that, that, that my grandma, and, and she said this and how, how much this mattered to their marriage through the years. If he said he was going to be somewhere, that is exactly where he was going to be. Uh, totally faithful in that way, but also just consistent in that way. Where he says, look, I'll, I'll be there tomorrow. Then you know that my grandpa will be there tomorrow. And the thing about kids that lived through the Depression era is that this consistency, if they're Christians, comes into their spiritual lives. And what you see about this era of child is that they are people in their spiritual lives that will almost always do the things that they know are right and avoid the things that they know are wrong. Now, they're not ever going to be the most expressive worshipers or, or the people who uh, you know, don't necessarily want leadership in the church, but they are people who once they come to a realization that there needs to be a change in their life, they are people who are going to make that change. And so once something is wrong to them, it's just not going to happen anymore. And once something is right to them, it's always going to happen. For example, my grandpa would, would never miss a church service apart from just about dying because it's something that he believes to be right and so no matter what, he finds a way to be in church. Here's the other thing that I see. My generation and younger, I kind of split the generation. They split it in 1983, the year I was born. But, but if you take my generation and the people younger than me, you see kind of the opposite. We're like the most inconsistent people that in the world today. That's just we are the most inconsistent people in the world today. And we sign up for a job and then, you know, we, we quit a job. And you just look at sports and they'll, they'll sign a seven-year contract, these young guys. And, and then in two years, they're whining about that contract and saying, if you don't give me another one, then I am going to go somewhere else. And, and, and you see the same inconsistency in the spiritual realm. And what I've found with people my age and younger, and, and sometimes all Christians, but, but especially in, in this generation that's, that's coming up right now, is the Christians are just way inconsistent. And what happens is like, well, I know this is wrong, but, you know, I don't feel like it's wrong today, and so I'll go ahead and do it anyway. Or, you know, I, I know that I should do that, but I'm tired or whatever, and so I'm not going to do that. And, and we see this just inconsistency and people go from one church to another and they run around and, and there is this lack of consistency in the younger generation and and here's the thing about depression children depression kids learned at a very young age to make decisions about food you're going whoa there's a jump right but but here just think about the life uh, think about the guy you know my grandpa for example he, he has made decisions about food and he eats this is true based on what he thinks is right 
and wrong. Now, for him, that means nothing goes to waste, right? Because he lived through the Depression. And he just said to me the other day, not related to the sermon series at all, he said we would eat everything on our plates because we didn't know when the next meal was coming. And so at a very young age, he, he knew that there had to be some choices made about the food that he ate. And that that has applied to his entire life. And what you see about him is he thinks it's wrong to waste food. And so he doesn't let things go bad in the fridge. And if they do, then he still eats them anyway. Uh, yeah, that's true. And he's got a stomach of, I don't know, some non-human thing. And, and, and you see that he's not going to spend lavishly on food. He's not like the guy that's like, oh, I need to have a fancy meal because it's going to make me feel better or anything like that. And you don't see him. Uh, I mean, he overeats a little sometimes, but you're not going to see him like stuff himself and gorge himself. That's just not going to happen for my grandpa. Because at a very young age, he learned to make these decisions about food. And for him, and he maybe has never put his finger on this, but but somewhere in his mind, he thinks... I'm not honoring God if I don't eat all of this because I'm wasteful if I do that. And so he has learned to conquer that in his life. Now, my generation, we've never thought about food at all. I mean, yeah, I can't afford the most expensive meal always, you know, and so I have to make some type of decision every now and then. But for the most part, every single day of my life, I eat whatever I want to, and it's always been that way. And I can't help but wonder... If the difference between the consistency in my grandpa's life and the consistency, the lack of consistency in the generation that I see rising up spiritually is connected to the fact that my grandpa learned to conquer the food issue at a young age and people in my generation and younger have not learned to conquer that. You see, I think that one of the reasons my grandpa is able to be so consistent about spiritual matters and people like him is because they have learned to be consistent about eating the way that they think God wants them to eat. Now, I defined gluttony last week, and this is how I defined it. And I think that just the topic is so foreign. The conversations that I had this week were very interesting. People are, are kind of excited about this series, but, but at the same time, and I think I was pretty clear last week, I know when I'm not, but people were like, what? Like, is he telling me I have to think about the things that I eat? And so it just went right over people's heads because they're like, I don't, I don't even know what it means to think about a decision when it comes to food because I just eat, you know, and that's what I do. Uh, but, but this is how I defined gluttony last week, and hopefully this morning we'll see kind of some things start to come together. Gluttony is not taking seriously the food that we eat in regards to our relationship with God. It is not considering the fact that we have a relationship with the God of the universe when we make choices about the food we eat. And last week I showed you through Philippians 3 that, that really what Paul says is that in some ways when we're eating whatever we want and we're not considering what God would have us eat, then we are acting as people who don't know God and we are idolizing ourselves because we are only eating to satisfy ourselves and not God. Right, here's a question that came to me this week. I had conversations about what I said last week and people were interested. In it. And this is one thing that, that came out of those conversations. Here's a great question to ask yourself. If you want to say, am I a glutton? Ask yourself, do I eat to satisfy myself or to please God? And if you only eat to satisfy yourself, then you would fit uh, under what I believe is gluttony. And last week I, I made this statement about gluttony. I wrote it down for you and I just want to bring it back here because I think what we'll see today 
and what we see in my grandpa and the younger generation, proves this to be true in a lot of ways. Conquer gluttony, conquer life. And what we see in my grandpa, that consistency where, where he may move forward slowly in his relationship with Jesus, but if he knows it's right, then he doesn't. If he knows it's wrong, he doesn't do it. What we see in him, we see the opposite of throughout Scripture. In Scripture, we see this theme throughout, especially the Old Testament, where people are not able to think like God about the food that they eat, and it leads to them turning away from God. You may not, but you're going, no, that can't, no way, like that's not there. But here's the thing, some people in Jewish history, in rabbinical literature, if you look back and see what the rabbis said, some people say, that the entire Old Testament and the problems that the Jewish people have are all connected to the decisions that they made about food and how they didn't think God's way. So if you'll just explore this with me, this is what I want to explore today. I just want to look at three stories. And in these stories, you see people not think God's way about food, and you see some pretty horrible, bad things partly come out of that. Genesis 2, 15 through 18, we'll go way back to the beginning of the Bible This is what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So here, this is Adam and Eve, right? I mean, you've heard of them. Uh, God creates man, and then he creates this woman in this story here, okay? Now, if we turn our attention to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, here's what we see. It's a pretty famous story in the Bible. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat any fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what does Satan do here? Satan begins to put a little bug in in Eve's mind so that she begins to think differently about food than God. You notice that? I mean, isn't, isn't that what's taking place here? He's saying, well... Did God really say that that's not something you're supposed to eat? I mean, really, if God did say that, then then it couldn't have been for a good reason. And so in, in some ways, according to the definition of gluttony, all Satan's trying to do here is get Eve to not think about food in regards to her relationship with God. He's trying to say, look, I know you hang out with this guy, you spend time with him, you walk around with him in this garden, but but look, you don't need to think about food like he thinks about food, because he's just trying to get you to not know what he knows. Now just watch what's said next. In verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 6 of Genesis, it's so amazing. The first part especially, pay very close attention. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, Isn't that fascinating? I mean, we jump a lot of times when we talk about this passage to, hey, I want to gain wisdom, and she had all this pride and and, and things like that. But, But isn't it interesting that the first thing that it says there is that the woman looks at this fruit and she goes, wow, that looks tasty. I mean, looks like that would be good to eat. 
And here, here's the thing about it. We know the story. She, she takes a bite of it, right? And, and then we see, we follow it. She gave some to her husband, and he ate it with her. And then immediately right after that, it's so crazy. They clothed themselves, and then the next verse says that they heard God coming, and they hid from God. Now we know about this passage of Scripture that, that it's called the fall of man. It is the first sin. That is what Christians believe. And, and it turned the world upside down because the world went from a perfect place to a sinful place. And, and the truth is every death and every sad feeling and everything that you do wrong that you wish you didn't do, all of that is connected to, to Eve's decision and Adam's decision to eat this. And it's really fascinating to me that, that at the heart of that, in some way, was Eve's desire to eat something that looked good. Isn't that crazy? I mean, you th- I look at Eve and I think, how could Eve have ever done this? I mean, just be obedient and the world would be a better place. But then I think about myself when I'm hungry. Right? And I think, man, if Satan came up to me when I was hungry and put some food in front of me that looked good, I might give in. And I say, well, no big deal. It's just food, right? I mean, who cares? I'll take a bite of that. And that's exactly what happened with Eve. And so here's what I, I want you to see. I mean, the very first sin, the very first wrongdoing, was in some ways connected to gluttony. In fact, it was an instance of gluttony because this woman, Eve, and Adam, too, did not think God's way about the food that they Eight. Genesis 25, we kind of follow this, this family line in the book of Genesis, and it's really interesting. And just a few generations of recorded history later, there's several generations that don't get their stories in the book of Genesis, but just a few genera- generations later, we come to this story uh, about a guy named uh, Isaac. And, and this is what it says in Genesis 25, 1 through 6. Isaac prayed to the Lord, on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled with each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to the Lord to inquire of him. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to him. So we see this kind of sibling rivalry that starts in the womb. It's It's an interesting story. It's not a story that hasn't been repeated throughout history, where brothers fight. And, and we see that one came out first. And so therefore, he deserved to have the birthright. And then let me just read to you about the, the Jewish birthright. In ancient times, the, the birthright was a very important and sacred thing. It belonged to the firstborn, in this case, Esau. The family name and titles were to pass along to the eldest son. He would also receive a chief portion of the inheritance. But it was more than just title to the physical assets of a family. It was also a spiritual position. And in the case of the people of God, God would lead, lead the family through the patriarchs or fathers. Additionally, in the special case of Esau and Jacob, that meant the one who, to whom belonged the birthright was the one who the covenant promised made to their grandfather Abraham would be realized. 
Ultimately, the Messiah would come through the holder of the birthright and bless the nations of the earth. Esau was the firstborn and the birthright was his. And so here, here's the deal. God makes promises to a man named Abraham. He says, look, through you many nations will spring up around the world and I will bless them tremendously. And Esau now, being born first, because he came out just a couple seconds or whatever, before his brother Jacob is going to be in that line. That's his right because he came out first. And, and, and Genesis 25, 27-34, just listen to this. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of the red stew, I'm famished. This is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Isn't this fascinating? I mean, he comes out first. And he's in line to, to be part of the Messiah's lineage. And he comes home hungry, famished even, and he sells all of those spiritual blessings for some lentil soup and a piece of bread. And again, I look at him and, and I want to judge him. I want to say, you man are an idiot. But my wife could tell you that I'd probably sell you our house for some soup and some bread if I was hungry enough. And, and I look at this story and I think about Esau here. And I think Esau did not care in this moment what God had to say about the food he ate. I mean, God would have provided for him. He was home for crying out loud. He would have been able to find another meal. But he only thought about satisfying the physical hunger that was in him and did not consider at all his relationship to God when he made this food decision. What's fascinating about this is, is a couple chapters later, one chapter, Genesis 26, we read, when Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Bere, the Hittite, and also Besemeth, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They were a source of grease to Isaac and Rebekah. And here's the thing. These are Canaanite women. And God had clearly said, do not marry anybody outside of this family line. And he just disobeys God, marries these women. And what happens is they become the Edomites who actually fight and are enemies of the Israelites, which is the line of Jacob. And so we see a man who was given to his own hunger turns away from God in the marrying of these women, and it causes problems for hundreds and thousands of years, where two groups of people, really two nations, fight and battle. And it all begins in some way with this man's inability to say, I will think about food the way that God wants me to think about food. And so we see gluttony here. It's not just a one-time instance. It's not like, yeah, sure, big deal. No, I'll just eat whatever. It doesn't matter. God won't care. But it results in war and fighting later on. Exodus 16 is, is the next one that I want to look at. And, and so let me just give you the story. Jacob has some sons and, and 
Uh, one of those sons is named Joseph. It's one of the best stories in all the Old Testament, in my opinion. He, he has this son, and, and the brothers are jealous of, of this son because Jacob loves him more. And so they sell Joseph off to be a slave in Egypt from their homeland. And Joseph goes off into the land, and through miraculous events, God raises him up to be second in charge of in all of Egypt. And there's a great famine over the land, and Joseph is in charge of making sure that they ration food well so that they'll be able to withstand this seven-year famine that God has told them would come. And, and the brothers of Joseph, Jacob and his family, finally they have to come to Egypt because they're hungry and they're starving in their own land. And they come and through some more miraculous events, they reconcile with this brother that they've sold into slavery. And Jacob and all of his sons and the entire family come into Egypt. And what happens is Joseph dies. So he's no longer the leader of Egypt. And over time, the Egyptians start to look at the Jews and they say, you people don't matter to us. We don't care about you. And they become slaves in the nation of Israel. And they're treated very, very poorly. And then through some more miraculous events, God raises up this leader named Moses and he rises to power in Egypt, but then he realizes that, that God is calling him to set the people free, the Jewish people free, because he is a Jew. And, and through more miraculous events, God leads these people out of Egypt and they go through the Red Sea. You may have seen the movie. And they come out into the desert being set free from the slavery in Egypt. And then, not very long later, about a month later, the people start to grumble about water. And, and God gives them water. And then he says this in, in Exodus 15. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So God makes this promise in chapter 15. He says, look, you don't need to worry about famine or all your animals dying or your water being filled up with blood. You don't need to worry about that because I will take care of you. And then we see in Exodus 16, and this is a long passage of Scripture. If you have a Bible, I'd love if you followed along. This is, this is what we read in verses 1 through 30. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to, to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. 
The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw this, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one keep any of it until the morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. And you see here what happens? God gives just a couple of instructions through Moses about food. He says, one, don't save it until the morning. And some of the people, they go, eh, I'm hungry. I'm going to save it into the morning. What if it's not there tomorrow? And God says, on the seventh day, don't go out and gather. And they say, well, you know, I need extra. I'm going to go out and gather. And so we see these people not think God's way about food. Now, just before you start judging them, these people have been out in the desert for 30 days and they've barely had anything to eat, right? And all of a sudden, food shows up. And God says to them, hey, I don't want you to save that. And truth be told, it would be difficult for me to go, yeah, no big deal, I won't save it. Who knows if I'll eat tomorrow, but I won't save it. And if I thought it was coming the next morning, it would be very difficult. Put yourselves in their situation. After 30 days of not having a good meal to not go, hey, if if there's food on the ground tomorrow, then I'm going to go out. And get it. And so everything logically was saying, save it, go gather it, even though God didn't say so. But here's the thing, God had told them not to do those things. And these people said, God, I know what you said, but I don't care. What makes sense to me is that I need to save it, and I need to gather it when you've said not to. And they do not think the way that God wants them to think. And it makes God angry. You go, well, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. Why is God so angry? But... but Look at what happens in this story. And sometimes we disconnect chapters of the Bible. We think they're like hundreds of years later. But just a few moments later, days really later, there's a changing point in the history of Israel. God says, hey, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And I'm going to do that by showing up on a mountain and giving you the law. 
I want you to gather around this mountain. I want you to purify yourselves and I will speak to you. And so God comes. And for the next several chapters after we read this incident where they didn't think God's way about food, we reread the law. God's up on this mountain in fire and he's, he's speaking to the people. And then he says, hey, I want Moses to come up on the mountain so that I can give him these laws on stone. They're called the Ten Commandments, right? And so Moses goes up on the mountain and he's up there for 40 days. And the people are going, I don't know where Moses went. Maybe he's dead. What are we going to do? And just 40 days later, after Moses goes up on this mountain, we read that the people build a golden calf. They build a false god. They say, hey, our God has not sent our leader back. And so guess what? Here's what we need to do. Let's burn all of our gold. Let's melt it down. And then we will build a new God to worship. And what we see is the same group of people who refuse to listen to God about food, refuse to worship God when things got difficult. And throughout their time in the desert, we see this inconsistency. When it's easy, we'll worship God. When it's not easy, we'll turn to other gods. We'll turn to the gods of the people around us. We'll turn to the own, our own gods that we make. It doesn't matter to us. And what we see through these people in the Old Testament consistently from the time of the first sin to the time that they become a nation is that they cannot conquer The battle with gluttony. They cannot seem to learn to think about food the way that God wants them to think about food. And what happens is that they live for God when it's easy. And they don't live for God when it's difficult. And when you flip to other places in the Bible, you see the exact opposite. And I'll tell these stories quicker than those stories. But but maybe the best example is a man named Daniel. Daniel is one of the great historical figures in the Bible, completely sold out to live for God. And listen to Daniel chapter 1, the book about him in the Bible. Happens just after the Jews have been exiled. They've been taken over by the Babylonians. And and they take them and they grab some of their young men. And this is what we read. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Sounds kind of like me. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. So here they are. Okay, here's Daniel and his friends and and these young, strapping, good-looking, awesome Jewish young men who have been taken uh, prisoner by the Babylonians. Here they are hanging out, and they're going to get the king's food. And then we pick it up, Daniel 1, 8 through 15. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. See what happens here? 
I mean, honestly, you're taken captive. You're thinking, God doesn't care. I mean, just give me some of that kingly food so I can get big and strong and maybe break my way out of here. I don't know. But Daniel goes, I know what God said in his law about food. And I cannot eat this person's food and be living for God the way that I want to. And so he turns down royal food and says, just give me vegetables. Daniel says, I will think God's way about food, even if I do not get this great food that's set before me. And what happens in Daniel's life is he becomes this amazing man of God. He interprets dreams. He refuses not to pray even though it becomes a law. And they throw him in a lion's den. You may have heard the story. And Daniel says, fine, throw me in the lion's den. I will still bow down and worship my God because I know he wants me to. And they throw him in there and God saves him. And through more miraculous things, God raises him up into power and he's able to become a leader in the Babylonian area. Some other guys that were with him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you may have heard of them too. It's one of the more famous stories in the Bible. They're there and they're the same, they have the same food situation and they refuse to eat too. There's a big giant fake god that's made in Babylonia and they say, the king says, if people do not bow to this god, then I will kill them. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who learned to conquer food and, and to live God's way even when it came to eating, they said, we're not going to bow to that false god. And they threw them in the fire and God saved them. But they were willing to die rather than worship something or somebody else that was not God. You see it in the New Testament too. You may have heard of Paul. He's an apostle. And in the New Testament we read this from Paul. Uh, Nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. And so here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, I'm an apostle. I'm traveling around. I'm helping out these churches. And therefore, I had a right to eat. I had a right to get free food from you. But I didn't because I wanted you to know how much I cared about you. And I wanted you to know how much I loved you. And that it wasn't for a paycheck that I was doing this job. And so I refused to eat. Man, if you're ever just going to be able to conquer food, turning down a free meal is a great place to start, and that would be difficult for me. But Paul does that. And if you know the life of Paul, he becomes one of the the greatest missionaries ever to live. He's responsible for about half of the New Testament's writings. And God works through this man in miraculous and amazing ways. And Paul had learned to think about God when he made food decisions. The last person, his name's Jesus. I know you've heard of him. Jesus is about to start his ministry and he's led out into the desert. And, and here's what we read. Matthew 4, 1 through 3. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. I'd do it. I mean, 40 days, I would turn anything into bread. I turn money into bread if I could. But listen to Jesus' answer. Verse 4. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus says, I don't care how hungry I am. I'm going to consider my relationship with God when I make a decision about food. And we know that Jesus lives a perfect life. And eventually... 
he gets to a point where he knows he's about to die on a cross for, for the sins of the world. And he has the power and ability to say, I'm not going to do this. But, but he goes, hey, it's not about me. It's about the glory of the Father. And it's about saving these people. And he dies on a cross. But we see early in his ministry, he wins a battle against food. And I, I show you all this today to say this. It's really easy to say, what does gluttony matter? I mean, who cares if I think about God? I mean, I don't, I don't even know what it means to think about God when I eat, and it's not that big a deal. But what we see in Scripture is there are two groups of people. A group that does not learn to think about God when they make food choices, and they end up not worshiping God in some pretty horrific and bad ways. And then there's another group who learns to think about God in all of their decisions, including food choices. And we see these people change the world for the glory of God. And so what I want you to hear today, and this is why I think this is so true. I mean, if you don't conquer gluttony, if you don't learn to think like God about food, then in every area of your life, you're going to be back and forth and all around. You'll say, maybe I'll do what God wants, but if it's too hard then I won't. But if you can learn to say at every meal, what is it that God wants me to do? Then I believe you can begin to transfer that to other areas of life and start to live for God consistently even when it's difficult. I just want to close with a couple of examples because, because I think that, that it's so foreign to us, one step back. I think that, that one of the things that we see in our country today is a turning away from God. And we see Christians who don't live any different than the rest of the world, right? I mean, you look at the Christian divorce rate, and it's almost the same as as, as regular Christians. And you look at the pornography uh, looking at rate of, of Christians, and it's almost the same as non-Christians. And I, I think, if I could just hypothesize, that, that one of the reasons for that is is that we haven't trained ourselves to conquer gluttony and to think like God about that. And so when it comes to other things, we go, eh, it's not that big a deal to, to think about God in this area either. And, and so here, let me just, I just want to give you a couple of examples, because I think as you listen to this, hopefully you're going, okay, I get it. I mean, we've spent two sermons where, where you've talked me into what gluttony is and why it's such a big deal and how it can change my life if I can learn to conquer it. But but what does it even mean to think like God about food? I mean, I don't, I don't even know what that means. And And here's the deal, and I alluded to this last week, but but there is no specific diet. It's not like God has something in mind that every person on the world needs to eat. All vegetables for Daniel, that was great. That might not be good for you. And so I've been vague because my fear is that I will stand in front of you and, and I will turn you into a legalist where you're like, well, that guy ate too many calories and he ate the wrong kind of meat and he, he isn't a vegetarian or he's not eating organic or you know he eats too many meals or he went out to that nice meal and you'll be like, you can never do that or else you're sinning. And that isn't the case because the Bible makes clear that nothing in and of itself is wrong for us to eat. And so don't become a person who says, look, hey, you all have to eat the way I eat because this is what God wants me to do. That's not the case, but, but here it is. It's asking God, how do you want me to eat? And here's some, just some basic principles that, that God is saying to me, and I alluded to them last week. One thing is this. I think God wants me to have energy to serve Him better. And so I think one of the ways that I need to consider God better in my own life when it comes to the topic of food is eating good food 
that will give me more energy. What I often do is I get hungry. And it's a lunchtime and I'm not going to eat for another hour. And I go, there's M&M's in the office. Uh, and I'm going to eat as many M&M's to make myself feel better. In fact, before we had M&M's in the office, because we just got those in this week, I had this thing of crackers from Costco. And this is, I think, a, an example that will be helpful to you. When I got hungry, I would get out the crackers, and it's a six-pack of boxes of crackers, right? And I would be like, I'm hungry, I need energy, and I would eat the whole pack of crackers. And then Angela would come in and go, did you just eat all those crackers right there? And I'd say, yes, I ate all those crackers, they were good. And this last week, same scenario, sitting there, hungry, need energy, feel like God would want me to have energy because I'm working on a sermon and and other things for our church. And I get out the, the pack of crackers, and I'm thinking... I want to eat all these. That would satisfy me. That would make my stomach feel better because I'd be full and that would feel good. But I paused and I thought and I said, God, you know, how many of these do I need to have the energy that I, that you want me to have right now to do this work for you? And so I ate this little stack of crackers and I felt pretty good about it, honestly. And I ate a better lunch when I got to lunch. And so that's one example from my life and it's small. Now here's, here's another one and we'll talk a lot about this next week. I think God would want us sometimes, not always, to spend less money on food so that we can help other people have food. Next week, the whole sermon will be about how we have a a food epidemic in our world. There are people dying of hunger. And sometimes we joke and we say, well, my food could never get to that starving child in Africa, right? You've probably said that to somebody before when they told you to finish your plate. But the truth is, if you would have purchased a little less food than was on your plate, you could have sent that check to a starving child in Africa. The infomercials are on TV all the time. And, And so when we eat too expensively, too consistently, we may be running the risk of not thinking, like God about food. Let me give you another one that you'll like even better. I think sometimes we don't enjoy food enough. I went to a Blazer game with my dad and my uncle the other day, and and we were going, uh, it was a Christmas present that I had purchased for them that the three of us would go together, and we were going, and everything's expensive there. But I went, and I was I was celebrating the fact that I have a great uncle and a great dad, and I was enjoying their company. We don't spend enough time together. And we also uh, were celebrating Christmas in some way. And I got there, and, and you know, I was thinking, like, about gluttony, and, and uh, should I, what should I be eating here? And, and what I really believe God wanted me to do was totally enjoy the food that was at the Rose Garden that night. I think God that night wanted me to spend more money on food in order to enjoy it and celebrate the family that I have in his birth. And sometimes I think because we don't consider God in our eating, like at Thanksgiving and Christmas we just kind of eat, that we don't actually enjoy food enough and sometimes we may not even eat enough food because we're not considering the celebration that God wants us to have. We think, well, I shouldn't have that extra, you know, turkey leg or whatever. But sometimes God, I believe, wants you to have the extra turkey leg. In fact, if you go to the Old Testament and you read about their festivals, they took very seriously having huge meals. And at Shavuot, which is the same time that we celebrate Pentecost, the birthday of the church, God would have them save a third of their food during the harvest so they could spend the next week after harvest eating all that food. And God didn't like when they didn't obey Him. And so sometimes I think eating for God... And what God would say to you is eat more and enjoy the celebration of the food more. Now look, you say, well, sometimes it's eating too much and sometimes it's eating too little. And I, I don't, that's between you and God. And I cannot 
I, I can't give you, this is the diet that's going to please God. It's something that you have to, to learn to say, God, you know, what should I be eating today? And what is it that you want me to eat? And how, even more important, because I don't think God always going to be like, hey, mashed potatoes and gravy or whatever. I think you need to say, what is it that would honor God today when I eat it? I mean, how can I honor God in the food choice that I make today? And so I'll end with the question that I started with. And this is something that, that you can ask yourself uh, this week. And, and here it is. When you eat, are you eating to satisfy yourself or are you eating to honor God? And if you're eating to satisfy yourself, then it's gluttony. If you're eating to honor God, then it's worship. And that's a beautiful thing. And, and, and I told you there'd be a challenge every week. And, and here's the challenge for this week. I know this can, it's difficult to just all of a sudden go, I'm every meal, I'm going to think about God. And last week I had you just get away and say, God, this is why I'm eating this for you today. And, and this week we take one step forward. And what I, I encourage you to do is this week I want you to change one of your meal choices because you are trying to honor God and not just satisfy yourself. And so at least one time during the course of this week, go, look, this is what I would have eaten, but now... I'm going to eat this because I believe this is what honors God today. Some of you, you might be on a diet or whatever, and you go, well, I think God really wants me to celebrate, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat a little more today. For some of you, it might be saying, hey, I'm not going to eat this meal because, because I'm going to give this money to somebody else to eat. It could be anything in between those two, but take one meal this week and just say, I'm just going to change it because I want to bring my God worship and I believe as you start to think, and this is what's happened to me, and I'm becoming super passionate about gluttony. I'm sorry. Um, you know, it's not the cool thing as a pastor to be passionate about. Uh, but I, I'm becoming really passionate because what's happening in my life is as I sit before a meal and, and I'm thinking about what to eat, I'm thinking about God. And it, it's causing me more consistently in my life just to stop and go, what do I need to do to honor God right now? What is it that will please God? And it's affecting all of my life, not just my food choices. And I believe that in a small way that will happen to you this week if you would just make one decision and say, I'm going to change this meal for the glory of God. Will you pray with me? Lord, I mean, I see God, just Christians that, that don't live for you and they, they profess to be Christians. And, and I see lots of people, Lord, even within our own congregation, sometimes in, in my own life, God, that that we, we used to move forward in our relationship with you and we got rid of the big sins and, and we feel kind of stuck and it's like, well, how can I take another step forward because I'm not doing anything crazy and I'm not doing anything horrible. And, and Lord, I just pray that you'd use our thinking about food to, to just help us, God, get our mindset on you. And I pray, God, that, that as we become consistent about eating the way that you want us to eat, Lord, we would become, and I think this will happen, Lord, you know I think it, that we will become more consistent about living for you in every situation in life. Lord, I thank you for both the negative and the positive examples in Scripture of people, God, who, who were able to conquer gluttony and think your way about food. And I pray that we would follow the good examples, Lord. And we'd be like Daniel, and, and no matter how great the food is that sat in front of us, we would say, whoa, what does God want me to do? And we'd be like Paul, God, who was willing to give up every meal, it seems like, if it meant bringing you more glory and more worship. And we'd be like you, Jesus, as you walked around on earth, who said, even if it means starving, I'm not going to... I'm not going to eat food because I want to worship God and not give in to Satan. And I just pray 
that you would remind us of those examples and help us to follow those examples. Lord, everybody here, God, is going to be different. And so I just pray over this week, Lord, as as they hopefully at least one time consider, Lord, uh, changing what they're going to eat for your glory, that you would show them what that is, God. And you've revealed some things to me about how I'm eating, but I pray that, that you'd reveal to them, God, what, what they, that you want them to eat or not eat or whatever it might be. And you just make that clear to them. And I pray that as they go through this week, it wouldn't be hard for them to know, God, that you would just lay it on their heart in such a powerful way, Lord, that they would just know, God wants me to change how I'm eating this meal today. And you speak to their hearts in that way, Lord. And finally, God, I pray, and this one is so important to me, God, is we learn to think about you at, at our meal time, Lord, which for, for a lot of us is three times a day. I pray, God, that it would just compel us to think about you in every decision that we make, Lord. And I, it just seems like, Lord, as Christians, we, we think about you on Sundays and, you know, we might try to apply a sermon to our lives the rest of the week. But, but God, we, we just make so many decisions and we do so many things without considering you. And, and I pray, God, that, uh, that the, you change that, Lord, as we, as we try, God, to eat your way, Lord. Let us, God, not be people who ever just do things, but we always, Lord, seek your will and your guidance in our life, God. Lord, I pray in just these next couple of moments of silence that you would speak, before we sing this song, that you'd speak to the hearts of us, Lord. Give us conviction about what you would want for food in our lives and just speak to us about what it might mean for us. I pray these things in your name. Amen.